If you have a Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Maybe you're already there from uh, Mark reading it earlier. Uh, If not, uh, you can head there, though we will be in various uh, scriptures from the Gospels uh, this afternoon. Before I start, I just wanted to say thanks to the uh, brothers who preached over the past four weeks. Um, So thank you uh, to Trevor and to Joshua, to Jordan and to Mark uh, for blessing our church, for blessing me, not only to hear the word preached, but to just uh, have some time to step back and do some other things and, and also prepare for this uh, Ephesians study. Um, so thank you, brothers. It was We were well served. And uh, this is uh, the final sermon in our short series on prayer. Um, I've often told people that I quit playing guitar uh, because I listened to James Taylor too much. And, and I knew that I could never reach his level of skill, which is really a pretty silly reason to quit playing the guitar. Um, That'd be like watching an Olympic marathoner run 26 consecutive sub-five-minute miles and then saying, I think I'll never run again. Uh, or going to a, uh, a restaurant with three Michelin stars and deciding that you're never going to cook again. Uh, and yet our, our shortcomings, when compared to others, can make us sometimes simply want to just quit trying altogether. As others have said in this series on prayer, f- prayer few things can make us feel more guilty or see how far short we fall than examining our prayer lives. That sense of failure often comes as we compare ourselves to one another or to some perceived ideal. So the question is, what would be the result if we, prepare, if we compared our prayer life to the prayer life of Jesus? Would his perfection cause us to just throw up our hands and say, well, why even try? Could, could such a study just lead us into frustration? Looking at Elijah is one thing, as we've seen. Elijah, as James says, was a man like us. But what about Jesus? Was Jesus a man like us? Well, in one sense, of course, he wasn't. He was a man unlike any other man. He was the perfect son of God incarnate, fully God, fully man. He lived in perfect communion with the Father. His life was pure worship to God all the time. He prayed without ceasing and with unwavering devotion. He was not a human like you or like me. But of course, there's another sense in which Jesus was just like us because he was a human being. He was a human being who, according to Hebrews 4.15, was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. That's the reason that we're told, uh, that is a reason we're told to, to hold firmly to our faith and to come boldly before God's throne of grace, knowing that he is a high priest who sympathizes with us. We could say, I think that he not only sympathizes with our, with our weaknesses as we go through life, but doesn't he then sympathize with our difficulty in prayer? Jesus didn't fall asleep in the garden. That was Peter, James, and John. But surely Jesus knew what fatigue was. And Jesus can sympathize with those of us who have prayed ourselves to sleep one too many times or been distracted in prayer or just given up on prayer altogether. Jesus, tempted in every way like us, yet without sin, therefore shows us how to grow in prayer in the midst of our weaknesses. 
James Taylor didn't need to be a threat to my guitar playing, nor did I think that I, I either had to reach his level of skill or just quit before I wasted my time. Instead, I think he could have shown me what was possible. It wouldn't happen overnight, but I bet if, if I had tried over the past 20 years that I, I could be able to play You've Got a Friend, I don't know, at some point if I'd taken steps every day. And in a similar way, I, I think Jesus shows us what is possible, not in a way that needs to discourage or dishearten us, but in a way that could help us if we have hearts that are teachable and humble. He's not a threat to us. He's a guide. He's, a, he's an encouragement. We know that his prayer life uh, is in fact part of the, the perfect righteousness that he gives us through faith. And that reminds us that our hope of salvation isn't in reaching some standard of prayerfulness, but it's through trusting that Christ has died for our failure and he has lived for our righteousness. And his prayer life is also part of not just the righteousness that he gives us, but also part of the example that he gives us to follow. He's shown us the path to go down. And not only has he given us his example, he has given us his very spirit to guide us and to even make up for our shortcomings. In all of this, Jesus gives us the freedom to follow him fully and even to fail miserably in prayer, knowing that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in weakness so that we can even glory in our weaknesses in prayer, knowing that he is our strength. Jesus is not the standard of prayer that causes us to quit, but that causes us to say, Lord, teach us to pray. So what can we learn from Jesus Christ about the habit of prayer? Well, certainly more than I could uh, communicate in one sermon. <laughs> Specifically then, I want us to see this lesson from his life this afternoon. Use the tools of time and place in developing a habit of prayer. Use the tools of time and place in developing a habit of prayer. The gospel writers help us see that Jesus, the greatest prayer of all time, used these tools in his prayer life, and so we would be foolish not to consider the power and the practicality of these two helps as we develop the discipline of prayer in our lives, as we seek to find a rhythm of prayer and, and strive to pray without ceasing. Use the tools of time and place in developing a habit of prayer. And now, to add my big idea to the big, big idea of this whole series that Mark gave us last week, if you're with us, and I put it up here because it's too big. Um, here you go. Let us pray, which was Trevor, to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Joshua led us in that, knowing that the recipient of our prayers is mighty and ever-present. That's what Jordan was talking about. Mark last week said, trusting that prayer is a privilege and has power to change things and this week, and using the tools of time and place to develop this life-changing habit. So you didn't even have to come to all five sermons. This is it, right there, distilled down into one big statement. Um, but it does flow in some ways, I guess. Uh, earlier, uh, Mark read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 for us. And you may have noticed these words in verse 35. This is one of our key verses it says about Jesus, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
The previous verses that Mark read show us the beginning of Jesus' formal ministry. And then Mark describes for us the, a day in the life of Jesus. It's a day filled with, filled with healing and teaching and more. And a day that was then followed by Jesus, not sleeping in, but Jesus rising early in the morning to pray. Which leads us to our first main point, which we're going to talk about the power of time. The power of time. Not thinking about how long we pray, but when we pray. The power of time. And the first time frame that we find is early in the morning. Early in the morning. To be more specific, very early in the morning, it says. And then to be even more specific, very early in the morning while it was still dark. There's no exact time given here, but in some sense, we know the time of day that he's talking about. We've all been up before the sun or anyone else is. This is not, in fact, the crack of dawn. It's before the crack of dawn. And so we might imagine seeing Jesus waking up early, silently moving through the place where he was staying as his eyes adjusted to the darkness and then walking out the door to go and pray. The description from Mark doesn't seem to be something unique that happened, but rather something that was common for Christ, something that was his practice, Jesus then, Jesus then made the first act of his day to pray, to spend time with his Father. He may have joined this discipline with others like silence and solitude uh, or meditating on Scripture, reading Scripture in some fashion. And in fact, prayer does seem to work best when it's coupled with these other habits. But whatever else he did at the core of Jesus' morning routine was prayer. So what's your morning routine? What do you do most every morning? It could include habits of personal hygiene. You take a shower, you comb your hair, you splash cold water on your face. Maybe you take the dog out first thing you get up, or you wake up your kids for school. Some of us eat breakfast, and others of us simply drink a cup of coffee or tea. Maybe your routine involves turning on the television or or checking social media or playing Wordle. Maybe your routine is uh, hit the snooze alarm as many times as you possibly can and then jump up and rush through whatever routine is necessary so that you aren't late for school or for work. In thinking about our morning routines, the, the practice of Jesus prompts us to ask this question. Do we make space in the morning for prayer? For unhurried moments with the Father? Now, there are a number of excuses that we could all make for not making time for early morning prayer. And I know that some of us have different work schedules and different rhythms of life that sort of change what this habit might look like. Furthermore, prayer in the morning is not a direct command. I don't want you to hear me saying that Jesus says you have to pray in the morning. But considering all of that, it would seem foolish to not see the power of starting each day with prayer. I think one way to to see this power is to think in terms of an offering to the Lord. Um, The the Israelites were told to give the Lord a tenth of their income, which included their their produce and and their their money, which was also called an offering of the the first fruits. In fact, there was an entire feast of the first fruits. I read an article online, and it summarizes this feast well, so let me just read this brief description. As its name indicates, the Feast of First Fruits marked thanksgiving to God for the first fruits of the harvest. In this case, the grain and cereal harvested in the spring in ancient Palestine. 
at this festival, the Israelites offered the very first sheaf of the harvest and were not allowed to eat anything from the crop until they gave its initial portion to the Lord. One point of of the tithe offering and of this feast was to acknowledge that everything that they had was from the Lord. The tithe wasn't meant to say, this 10% is yours, God, and the other 90% is mine. A dollar for you, nine for me. A tomato for you, nine for me. It, nor was the, the offering of the first sheaf meant to say that the rest of the crop was theirs, brought about by their own labor. Rather, the point was that by giving the first of their produce, they were acknowledged that, acknowledging that that was the Lord's, as well as everything else that followed after that. I wonder if we could think about prayer in the morning in a similar way. Could it be that in giving Christ those waking moments that we are saying to ourselves that our time, our health, our energy, our life, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that all of them throughout the rest of the day, they're all the Lord's. We're not simply saying that the time that we give the Lord in the morning, seeking him and praying for others is, is all that we offer him, but also that every moment that follows is from him and through him and to him and for him. As we pray, we are offering him every activity and every thought of that day that lies in front of us. If that's the case, if, if in the discipline of morning prayer, we are setting the course for our day by beginning with, with worship, then how might starting our day with everything other than prayer shape how we walk through those first hours or through the hours of our life that follow? If prayer is not part of our routine, but everything else is, what does that say? In his book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, Justin Whitmull early early writes this. Let me give you a longer quote, but it's helpful. He begins, Our phones and their programmers are happy to set our habits for us. They would love to speak the first words of the day, and they usually do. Our phones and whatever has come through them thus shape the first desires of the morning and order, of, and order our first prayers. He continues, before I banished notifications, I would wake to the prayers someone else wanted me to pray. If it was an early morning work email with a task for me, I would begin the day wishing it could be done or that I could avoid it. If it was a news alert about some elected official doing something abominable, I would begin the day wishing people could just have some common sense like I did. If it was a social media alert, I would begin the day wishing my life happened in a tinted square frame. Each of these nudges invited prayers of their own, usually prayers that framed the day in stress, envy, or cynicism. And they are all the more powerful because they are done by unconscious habit. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. And so in contrast to these unconscious habits, morning prayer then is a a conscious choice, a conscious choice to shape our days around worship to God, submission to the Lordship of Jesus, and sensitivity to the leadings of the Spirit. And in adding prayer to our our morning routine, we are likely pushing something else, Not, not pushing something else out. Not necessarily something bad, but certainly something not as good and not as Christ-centric as praying. As we think about this habit of morning prayer, know that these prayers don't need to be lengthy 
or involved. If that's what you're envisioning, then, then don't envision that necessarily. Uh, you might just say the Lord's Prayer before your feet hit the floor. Or you might get out of bed and kneel by your bed for a moment and, and pray before you jump into your routine. Maybe you take a, a moment to journal a prayer of surrender while you're at the breakfast table. You could offer up the items on your calendar each day or, or maybe surrender every part of your mind and your body to Christ. Maybe you develop a, a pattern of various people or concerns to pray for uh, each day of the week. You could pray the same prayer every morning, just a simple prayer that you repeat every morning. Or you might use a book like Every Moment Holy or the Book of Common Prayer or the Valley of Vision as an aid to help you pray. Whatever the prayer looks like, short or long, whispered or, or written, these conscious offerings of the first fruits of our day, given in the, knowledge, in the knowledge that every moment that follows is also the Lord's, are a means of, of placing our derailed and misordered priorities and concerns back on the track of submission to God's will and the seeking of his glory. And they're a way of following Jesus. Jesus who rose very early in the morning, before it was dark, to go and pray. Well, early in the morning is not the only specific time that we're told that Jesus prayed. In, in both Mark 6 and Matthew 14, we read that after feeding the 5,000 and before meeting his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, meeting them while walking on the water, uh, Jesus uh, retreated from the crowds for a moment of solitary prayer. This is what it says in Matthew 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Not surprisingly, Jesus prayed in the evening. So that's our second time frame in the evening. Uh, in this text, we're not told when he started praying, but it was after the events of the day and it lasted into those evening hours. Assuming Jesus also began this day with prayer, we find that he also ends this day with prayer. Thus, prayer forms the, the bookends of his day. Or maybe we could think about morning and evening prayer like two pieces of bread holding the fixings of your sandwich together. <laughs> the sandwich of your day, as it were. They, they bring a little order to the chaos of it all. A sandwich that has no bread or even just one piece of bread is a bit of a mess, right? But, but the bread gives us something to hold on to and something to hold everything together. And prayer can do the same for everything that fills our day. It holds it together in, in submission to Christ. If we agree that prayer is like a first fruits offering to the Lord that looks forward and says that everything that follows is also the Lord's, then prayer in the evening could function as a way to, to look back on the day and acknowledge God's, uh, God's hand of guidance and blessing throughout the day. The Jewish feast, another Jewish feast, the, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest, involved giving first fruits as well. But we could also make a connection to the idea of, of giving not only the, the early crops to the Lord, but also giving the, the later crops to the Lord, the, the early moments of our day, but also the final moments of our day. In the waning moments of our day, we might use prayer to confess our sins and to return to the hope of the gospel. We might ask the Lord questions, questions that came up that day that we just don't understand what he's doing. We can take all the stresses of our day and release them into our hands. Uh, 
Sleep, it's been said, is practice for death. So we might even consider our own mortality and place our eternal hope freshly on the finished work of Jesus. You know, there's a profound simplicity to this little prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Evening prayers could be a time to remember our mortality and to remember the hope of the resurrection that we have. I think evening prayer is also a unique time for prayer in community. Prayers before bedtime with children, that's a wonderful practice, isn't it? Let me tell you about the simple routine that we found helpful at our house. Maybe it will be a help to you. Uh, Psalm 134 marks the start of this routine. I come up the stairs and announce as I climb each step what Psalm 134 says, which is, Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. You who stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you out of Zion. And everyone knows it's time to be ready for bed. (laughs) And then we typically read a chapter of scripture, or maybe uh, right now we're reading a chapter from the Jesus Storybook Bible each night. After which, sometimes I'll pray, but usually uh, we'll just say the Lord's Prayer together or say Psalm 23 together. And by this time, they all have it memorized. And then uh, after we pray, I speak this blessing over the kids. Visit this place, O Lord, and drive far from it all snares of the enemy. Let your holy angels dwell with us to preserve us in peace. And let your blessing be upon us always through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's not particularly profound. It's not awe-inspiring, but it's a routine. It's a routine of the word and prayer, of thanks and blessing of trust and consecration. It's a way to close the day before the face of God and lead my children to do the same. It's simple. It doesn't have to be really intense, but I would commend to you evening prayers with your children as a way to practice bookending your day, ending your day remembering what Christ has done and who God is to us. Praying with your spouse before bed is also a great blessing. It's a pattern that Andrew and I have kept in time past but not recently. I'll be totally honest. It's one that we've fallen out of practice. And so I'm convicted. Uh, I sent her a text on Thursday. Let's start praying in the evenings again. And I promise you, I will fall asleep multiple times as we, as we do this, as we pray before bed. But what better way to end the day than falling asleep uh, seeking the Lord? Whether with others or on your own, prayer in the evening is a wonderful way to end each day. It's a habit that centers our hearts on what is true and beautiful, and it's one that the Lord seems to have practiced. So we see Jesus praying in the morning and in the evening. Let me give you a third time frame. We also see in Luke 6 that he prayed all night. He prayed all night. Luke 6, 12 to 13 says this, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, this all-night prayer wasn't something that Jesus did every night. In fact, it would seem that the choosing of the disciples the next day is what motivated this extended time in prayer. What's the other time that we see Jesus praying through the night? Well, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Before his crucifixion. Luke 22 39 through 40 says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. 
And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I think in this that Jesus teaches us that there are decisions and there are difficulties that will make our hearts say, my morning and my evening prayers are not enough. I need to find some extended time to seek the Lord. Times when we would be led to prayer in the night, maybe prayer uh, through the day or all through the night, but seasons of lengthy prayer. What are the things that you are willing to stay up all night for? What are the things that you will sacrifice sleep to do? Is prayer on that list for us? What might it look like to schedule that? To look at at the calendar of your year and to schedule a a day or a night of extended time seeking the Lord? What might that look like for our church to set a time set aside times of extended prayer where we are seeking the Lord together. As we think about these extended periods of time, I think we should also think about Sabbath. Jake preached about that for us recently, of this, this day of rest away from work where we are able to focus on the Lord apart from the distractions of life. How might we take full advantage of Sabbath to seek the Lord more earnestly in prayer? Well, we see Jesus prayed early in the morning. He prayed in the evening. He prayed all night. But did Jesus pray in the afternoon? There's no specific mention of afternoon prayers. Well, I think Jesus most certainly prayed in the afternoon. Would you agree? I think so. Uh, It could be that the, the prayers of the morning and the evening fueled what we can only assume was the ceaseless prayer life of Jesus. That command from 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing is aided by bookending our days in prayer in the morning and then in the evening. We set our minds on heavenly things and the Spirit helps us to keep our hearts there as we go throughout the day offering arrow prayers to the Lord or using moments of calm for seeking the Lord. And these prayers sustain us up until our evening prayers. Of course, the fact that there is no specific mention of afternoon prayers in the life of Jesus is not a reason to not have that kind of a habit. Uh, Daniel, in Daniel 6, you'll remember he prays three times a day. And church history is filled with examples of various daily prayer regimens and rituals that would be great to adopt. I would encourage you to study those patterns. But I would also say this. I think that the absence of any description of Jesus praying specifically in the middle of the day could in fact be deeply encouraging to the vast majority of us who have responsibilities and jobs that keep us busy between our morning and evening prayers. It means that To follow Jesus' example of prayer doesn't mean that we need to spend hours in the middle of the day in prayer. It means that we who spend our days using our our gifts and our abilities to, to work or to care for others can still walk in deep communion with the Lord, just like someone who might throw off all the distractions of life and live live some sort of monastic existence where they pray all day long. Because Jesus had to work. Jesus had things that he was called to do. So he prayed in the morning, and he prayed in the evening, and he did what was before him in between those times. He had work to do, and he he prayed certainly as he went about his day, and he made time for extended uh, prayer when the occasion required or when, when he felt that that was necessary. But at the same time, there wasn't these moments where he, where he had to spend time in the middle of the day necessarily in deep prayer. 
here's what I'm trying to say. I'm confusing myself. Uh, what I hope you see, this is, this is what I want you to see, that the example of Jesus is not only the, the power of, of time in, in developing this, this habit of prayer, but also that Jesus' example seems very practical. It's, it's not beyond us. It seems like something that we who are indwelt by the Spirit can follow. Not, not perfectly, but with ever-increasing faithfulness, we can walk in these patterns of praying in the morning, of praying in the evening, of finding specific times where we spend extended periods of time in prayer, but also seeking to pray without ceasing as we go about our day. Well, let me move very quickly and very briefly to the power of place. Uh, We're almost out of time already, so I'm going to be very quick on the power of place. We've talked about the power of time, the power of place. Now, seemingly every time that the gospel writers tell us that Jesus prayed, they also tell us where he prayed, Um, usually in very general terms. In Mark 1, it's said to be a desolate place. Luke 4.42 tells us, and when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. Luke 5.16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Similarly, Mark, or, uh, Matthew 14, 12, and 13 says that when Jesus heard of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew by boat to a solitary place to pray. And then we also read of him heading to a mountain to pray. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 6, Luke 9, all talk about him going to a mountain. This doesn't seem to be the same mountain every time, though we know that the Garden of that the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed before he was crucified, was on the Mount of Olives. And Luke tells us that going to this place was his custom. So if there was one specific mountain that he often went to, it would be the Mount of Olives. More generally, though, where did Jesus pray? He prayed in desolate places. He prayed in solitary places. And he prayed on mountains. Taken generally, I think we could just say Jesus shows us that where we pray is a helpful tool as we develop this, this discipline. But at, at a minimum, he also shows us that there's no specific place that we have to pray. We don't need to be in church. We don't need to be in a temple. We don't need to be facing a certain direction. Any place is a place of prayer for the spirit and dwelt follower of Jesus. But the desolate place and the solitary place and even the mountain all point us to finding a place without distractions very simple, a place without distractions. I think we know that intuitively, but Jesus shows it to us. What, what's the place? It's a place without distractions, and specifically, a place without the distraction of people. Now, that could sound harsh, but of course, we know that Jesus needed to withdraw from people so that he could engage with them in the power of the Spirit. Have you seen uh, mugs like this or cups like this? It's, it's talking about coffee, right? When it's this high, don't talk to me. And maybe when I drink half that cup of coffee, okay, maybe you can start talking to me. But, okay, once I drink this cup of coffee, now you can talk to me. (laughs) Uh, I think, I wonder, what if we saw that spending time in prayer before spending time with people helped us in the way that this mug seems to communicate that coffee helps us? What if spending time alone with the Lord allowed us to to be more loving and more patient and more giving and more kind and more wise towards those around us? What if prayer prepared us to be with those that we interact with? You can take your coffee with you when you go pray too. No problem with that. (laughs) 
of the desolate and the solitary place fits with Jesus' teaching on the, the Sermon on the Mount. He says in, in Matthew 6, 5 through 6, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may see, be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. A private place away from others not only helps us to avoid distractions, but also hypocrisy. We, we allow our hearts to be concerned with God and with him alone. So Jesus shows us that the place of prayer should be a place without distractions. For some of us, that place without distractions is only found by rising early in the morning. So these things sort of come together, don't they? Could we also say that we should pray in, a, in an uncomfortable place? Not only a place free from distractions, but an uncomfortable place. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's intriguing to me that Jesus would often go to a desolate place. Because the word desolate is translated as wilderness or, or desert when talking about where Jesus was tempted by Satan. We're told in Matthew, in Mark 1.12 that Jesus was driven into the wilderness in that instance. But then in Mark 1.35, he voluntarily went into that same desert. He goes into the place of testing. Sitting in your comfiest chair uh, may not be the best place to pray. We've all thought, you know what, I'm going to just lay here in bed for a little bit and pray, which really means I think I'm going to go back to sleep. <laughs> Walking outside or, or kneeling or standing have various benefits when it comes to prayer, and one of them is to keep us awake and to keep us praying. Maybe an uncomfortable place of prayer also reminds us of the struggle that prayer can be, of the, the wrestling that we are doing with our hearts and even with God as we align our will to his. Maybe we would be led to, to fight the temptations of the day in a desolate place before they even come because prayer is often a battle. But this place away from people and comfort can also be a place that draws us near to God. That's, I think, the, other, the third thing I would say about place is to find a place that draws us near to God. A place without distractions and an uncomfortable place and now a place that draws us near to God. Mountains often functioned in this way, giving a, a sense of God's nearness and even of his power. Jesus seemed to usually be praying in nature, we see, surrounded by reminders of God's care, of, of his beauty, of his power, of his majesty. We may not be able to go to the mountains, no matter how much we wish we could every day to pray. But even a walk through our neighborhoods as the sun rises or as the stars are appearing can remind us of how great and glorious our Father is. In another sense, whether we go to a mountain or not, we're always going to a mountain, aren't we? We're always going to Mount Calvary. All of our prayers are possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The mountain is the, is the place where Christ has made it possible for us to draw near to God. And so whether in our living room or high on a mountain, we draw near to God through his broken body and his shed blood. The place we are always praying, in fact, is at the foot of the cross. Well, I've said, I've not said everything that could be said, but I've said all that I can say right now. Uh, so let me close with two encouragements that hopefully flow from this meditation. Uh, two encouragements as we seek to develop the habit of prayer. One is about patience, and one is about community. 
So first, be patient. Be patient. Developing new habits, stopping old ones takes time, and it can be very discouraging, especially in early days. When you learn a new instrument, it doesn't sound like much when you first start. But the daily discipline of playing slowly forms into a beautiful song. And so too, as we use the tools of time and place in our daily prayers, we can slowly grow to follow Jesus and and pray such that it becomes this beautiful melody of surrender to him that marks our days. So be patient. And second, remember that we're practicing this in community. If If you're convicted of prayerlessness, or if you resolve to, to grow in some way in your, in your prayer life and in this, this, this habit of prayer, then tell someone. Tell someone here before you leave. Not in the prideful way that the Pharisees did, uh, so that you can show off and talk about how great uh, you want to be at prayer. You know, walk up and say, I'm, I'm only praying an hour a day. I'd like to pray three hours a day. That's not what we're asking you to do. But this idea of, in, in humility, coming to one another and saying, I'm weak in this and I want to grow. If you feel compelled to, to begin praying in the morning or in the evening, talk to a brother or sister. If you feel compelled to begin praying in the evening with your spouse, tell him or her. Do it during the closing song, <laughs> before the moment passes and you forget to do it. If you want to pray in the evening with your kids more regularly, tell them because they won't forget, and they'll remind you. Hey, Mom, hey, Dad, you said we were going to pray together in the evenings. Find strength for your private prayer life in the family of God here that that loves you. Well, may God use these practical steps seen in the life of Jesus to make us a people of prayer. And may he remind us always that Jesus is the perfect one, the one whose prayer life makes up for all of our shortcomings who gives us his righteousness and has died for our justification. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to pray. We long to pray more. We long to draw nearer to you and to know you uh, deeper and and more completely. Would you use uh, this example of Jesus that you've given us to help us to to grow in the habit of prayer. Lord, would you change even our desires? There's part of us that loves our current routine, and even if prayer is not a part of it, Lord, would you change it so that that we would love to pray, and that would be the longing of our hearts. It would be the first thing that we want to do every day and the last thing we want to do every night, and that that desire would flow with us throughout every day. Lord, help us to love one another well as a church and to encourage one another in this habit. I thank you for the past, these, these, these five weeks of thinking on prayer, may they not just be a, a sermon series that we uh, walk through and then forget, but Lord, help us to return often and, and to remember the power of prayer. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.